My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Today marks the end of the first or second week of school in many parts of Canada, though there are about a million caveats to that announcement. Many high schools won't even start until at least next week. In some school boards, students are returning in staggered fashion day by day. In others, plans are literally being finalized the nights before class is to start. It's kind of a mess. And across the country, a lot of students are having very different returns to school. And then there are the kids who aren't returning at all. And there are also a million things we don't know about them. Will they be learning online? Will that work? Will they be homeschooled? Will they be cared for by relatives? How far are parents who do have the means prepared to go to keep their children safe and well-taught during this pandemic? And if enough parents opt for other kinds of learning, what does that do to the school system? And what does that do to the images these parents have of themselves? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Matt Gurney is a columnist and an editor with The National Post. He also writes a weekly newsletter called Code 47, which you can find at mattgurney.substack.com. Hey, Matt. Hey, good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Why don't you why don't you start by kind of giving us the lay of the land as schools reopened uh, this week in many places? What kinds of choices are a lot of parents making? You know, that's an interesting question, and it's one we're living. You've probably heard the old expression, you're burning the candle at both ends. I have a preferred version, which is I'm getting kicked on both sides of my butt at the same time. I have young kids, school-age kids, and I also have a wife who's an elementary school teacher. And because in the greater Toronto area, the return to school is being staggered, my wife is back to work before my kids are in school. So this is relevant to our conversation, and it's also relevant for you and your listeners to know. If you hear two kids fighting in the background, that's why. Uh, I'm I'm solo dadding this week because my wife has already gone back to work. But it is, it's basically that. Um, in the Toronto District School Board, where my kids go to school, they delayed the return to school by a week. So it would normally have been earlier this week. In fact, it's going to be early next week. And even then, they're bringing the grades back not exactly day at a time. It's not quite that simple, but every day next week, they are bringing back a different uh, collection of grades and they're filling up the classrooms. All of this, to my understanding, is uh, because parents, teachers, school administrators, they need time to adapt to the new normal. So they, they'd rather do it in small pieces uh, than all, all at once. And in terms of how families are reacting, I guess to a certain extent, I mean, we're getting some reports of how it's gone in other parts of the country or even other parts of Ontario, but here in the GTA, like the only answer I can give you is an exasperated shrug. Like we're going to find out and we'll probably start to find out in a couple of weeks how well it's gone. By the numbers though, it looks like a clear majority of students are returning to the classroom, but there is a significant number of kids who are not returning. Um, I've seen figures 
for, for specific schools as low as 15%, but I've also seen some board-wide figures suggesting as many as a quarter of school-aged kids are not coming back to the classroom. And there are um, a few reasons that that might happen. And, and one of them, of course, is that uh, in lower-income places, um, it's not safe to send the kids back to school. They're living uh, with their grandmothers. And uh, I, I've seen stories about uh, elevators that can take an hour to uh, get the kids down and off to school. And so in that case, it's a matter of inequality. But I, I wanted to talk to you about the anecdotal stuff that's going around about, you know, the parents who are taking their kids out of school and, and doing it on their own. You know what? I mean, it, it is anecdotal. For for me, it's family as well. And I'm not here to to reveal too much of my, my family business, but my sister, uh, God bless her, she is not currently working her job you know she was gainfully employed right up to the day the lockdown uh was imposed her job was one of those ones she had the bad luck of being someone who's but not only her job but also her almost her entire industry has been destroyed by COVID 19. she's at home she doesn't know what the future is going to bring she has decided for the time being that my young niece will be at home and can be uh doing the online learning that's offered because she my sister i should say is able to do that right now you've mentioned low-income families who are in areas where they're not able to be doing online schooling. And uh, the, the elevator issue is a great one that a lot of us who don't live in high rises probably hadn't even thought of. But there are other considerations too. Lower income families are probably less able than others to be able to go, you know what? We're not sending our kids back to school. There's a lot of families right now who for a lot of different overlapping reasons, which include finances, geography, family situation, uh, health reasons, including whether or not anyone in the family is immunocompromised and therefore more cautious around COVID. This is a tough one. We are all having to make decisions for ourselves, for our own, for our own personal family interest. And I, I'm not sure there is sort of an overwhelming meta-narrative that explains all of this. It really is an example of every family for itself. And for the families that do have the means, um, and these are the stories that I've seen circulating on social media that frankly, frankly, piss a lot of people off. Can you kind of describe the the private pod idea? Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, let's talk about it as a spectrum. So on, on one end of the spectrum, we have what a lot of families are doing. And like I said, based on the numbers, what a majority of families are doing, which is that the kids are going back to school. School's different. It's going to be weird, but that's where they're going. Um, so that's the majority of families. There's a smaller number, but still a substantial numbers that are keeping the kids at home, but they are receiving online learning via the publicly funded school boards. And that's my niece whom I've mentioned. But then there is also that third category you just alluded to there, which is uh, specific families who either have the financial means or they have the personal circumstances. Often those two are one and the same, but not always, who just say, you know what, we're not sending our kids back to school but we are going to use private resources, whether that's money or just the time of one of the parents to say, we're, we're getting um, our, our two kids and the neighbor's two kids and the kid across the street, and we're doing school in the living room. And, you know, these three families are going to combine their money and they're going to, they're going to hire a tutor who can do it online or can do it in person. It obviously varies, but basically it is I guess we could call it almost a 21st century spin on homeschooling. It's not that old idea of, you know, dad goes to work and mom, you know, raises the, ki the kids at home and gives them their schooling. But it's something almost kind of a, a modern twist on that, where people are using private resources, whether it's money or time, 
to provide a private education either for their child or children or a very small group of children with the obvious advantages in this era of COVID that if there is no break in a school, it's not going to impact your, your learning pod. So long as of course you are otherwise cautious and you're not, you know, out and about in public and stuff like that. It gives people the, the ability if they're so able to have some kind of schooling for their children, also to have some kind of child care for their children. So mom and dad can focus on their jobs while also providing maximum realistic protection against the danger of COVID. By and large, um, what kind of families are doing this? I only know what I've read. Um, sure. I would say it comes down to, like I said, I've, I've tried to draw a distinction between these two things, but it's families that either have a lot of money or have the ability through their life circumstances to have a parent at home or a, a very tight community. So there's a couple of different groups here. I know it's very easy to go, oh, it, it all comes down to money. And I'm sure in a lot of cases it is exactly that. But anecdotally, I have heard of uh, situations where you can have a learning pod in a multi-generational family that might not actually be per se particularly wealthy if you look at their, their household income. But maybe grandma lives with them and grandma is a recently retired elementary school teacher. She's going to pod those kids at home. So there are, it's not as simple as saying this is just about the wealthy, but probably as a shorthand, we could, yeah, I would say it would be fair to say that the people who can do this are the people who can afford to. Where does that leave the parents who are deciding to bubble in these pods because they can, whether whether because of money or time, uh, do that? And, you know, it's obviously a privilege to be able to do it, but are they thinking about what it's costing the school system or even what it's costing their kids and other kids? That's an interesting question. I, I can't speak to whether or not they're thinking about it. Um, it. They're certainly doing it. Whether or not it's something they're reflecting on, you, you'd have to ask them. For what, for what it's worth, and I just put this out there purely as personal disclosure, my wife and I did discuss all these options. We did discuss what is the right thing to do for our kids, and we decided until we get a sense of what the public health situation is going to look like this fall, that we felt our kids being back in their public school was the best thing for them. We did have other options. We could have done online learning. I work from home. It would be a nightmare for me in terms of stress to do my job and monitor their online learning, but it was possible. It was an option we considered. We considered private school. We did consider a learning pod. We, we looked into all these things. And I got to be honest with you, when we were having these conversations, like you asked, what are parents thinking about uh, who are doing the learning pods? I'm just being very blunt with you here, uh, respectfully so, but just being very direct. The, the impact on society was not relevant to our decision. We made the decision based on the needs of myself, my wife, and my children. The, the impact on society, I'm not going to say it didn't occur to us, but it was not a factor in our decision. I can't speak for other people who have thought about this. I can't certainly speak for the people who chose differently than we did, but the decision we made was about our kids. It was not about society and culture at large. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is where the topic of your newsletter comes into play, which is sort of a 
thinking about the idea that, of course, privileged people are making privileged decisions because that's the point of it. And I will um, confess personally to you, uh, it's not the same as public school. My young daughter was in daycare and we are we are doing a bubble with uh, a neighboring family uh, who, you know, the two kids were in daycare together uh, rather than send them back to a 24 kid daycare. Um, we kept them out and hired a, a half day uh, ECE person to teach them for a little while. And uh, it was a decision that I was conflicted about just because I, I want my daughter to have the experience of, of having a large class and kids from all over and et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, I I want my daughter to be able to see her grandmother without fretting about God knows what she's bringing home. And so, yeah, I, I thought about the, the larger picture of it for about two minutes and then did what was best for my kid, you know? Uh, and, and I recognized as I was doing that, that 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 was exercising privilege. Well, it's interesting because I wrote, and you've referenced my my newsletter, and thanks for plugging that, by the way. I do appreciate that. But you, 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 I wrote an essay at my newsletter uh, last week about this very issue because the Globe and Mail recently ran a terrific feature, and it was uh, about all the stuff we're talking about, kind of what the school return is going to look like this fall, and specifically the issues of uh, parents who have more privilege, mainly money, sometimes family circumstances, their advantages here. And they were talking about the question you had asked, how they're feeling about that. And I I had politely rolled my eyes a little bit at this, right? Because this is one of those things where, as I said in the newsletter, it's easy to be progressive on issues where your progressivism doesn't really cost you anything. And this is an issue where being progressive has a real cost and it could have the cost depending on your family uh, health situation. Like for instance, you're talking about, you're worried about your, your kid's grandmother. Absolutely. My, my wife's uh, mother, she's in good health overall, but she is older. She is in the risk range of COVID and she has had some chronic lung problems. So you bet I'm worried about that. Other families are in different circumstances. A, a woman we know is, is quite young and has recently survived, thank God, about with cancer but her immune system is still a mess because of the chemotherapy. She's not sending her kids to school this year. So we have all these conversations. The, the Globe article had talked about other issues like Black Lives Matter uh, protests and, and activism. They had talked about things like climate change. These are good things that for the individual, the progressive individual, most of the time your investment is very low and the risk to you is very low. And even as I said, there's offsetting advantages in, in many in many ways of being seen overtly and publicly to be on the right side of these progressive issues. So whatever sacrifice, taking a day off to go to a march for Black Lives Matter or, or the climate strike uh, that we had in downtown Toronto last year, okay, so there's a bit of an imposition on your life to go do these things, but there's offsetting benefits. You get to tweet pictures of yourself at the march. So it's a bit of a wash here. This is a much more visceral issue. We are talking right. about the literal health and safety of families. We're also certainly talking about the economic safety of families, whether or not mom and dad can afford to return to work without school. And I just think this is a, one of those great where the rubber meets the road issues. Wow. It turns out people who are normally nominally identifying themselves as being you know, left-leaning progressive types are making decisions that are in their own self-interest. No kidding. It's very easy to be on the right side of the issues that don't cost you anything. It's a lot harder to be on the right side of the issues where you're putting your children, your mother-in-law, or your family's financial security in danger. 
And that's why I wanted to talk to you about this, because uh, I saw myself in your essay. And, and if we wanted to, and we should uh, give a shout out to uh, Doc Shana Bhaskar Murti and Carolyn Alfonso, who did that piece for The Globe that sort of provided uh, the impetus for this discussion. But what, what caught my uh, brain about your piece was the idea um, of how quickly our self-image can go out the window when we're reduced to, you know, mama bear or papa bear. And... And it kind of puts the lie to a lot of the stuff we tell ourselves when things are good. It really does. But I, I also think you've actually maybe put your finger on something there that is actually essential to this conversation. And I don't even know if you realized it when you did it, because you said self-image. I think this speaks more to the self-image we have of ourselves than it necessarily does any objective reality. I'm going to posit something to you here, and it's something I mentioned in my newsletter. I think many people might have the self-image of themselves as being very uh, progressive on all these issues, but they're also, if they're parents, hardwired genetically to put their kids first. And I think if you are someone who had an understanding or um, uh, a sense of yourself as someone who's kind of your leading identity was that you're, you're progressive, that you're, you're a good lefty on all these issues, you might be struggling with this. If you're someone who is not politically engaged, not ideologically aware, doesn't think a lot about these issues and is very centered in your identity as a parent, I don't think you thought about this at all. It probably never even occurred to you. I think the world I live in is such that I, I am aware of the, the cultural and, and social issues because I write about them or I talk about them. So I'm aware of these issues. But if you had put to me even before this in the abstract, what matters more to you, like the, the well-being of your family or progress in society, I would not have had any qualms about going, well, the well-being of my family. It's harder for other people whose self-identity is more invested in, in ideological or, or political ends. So I think this is just one of those other examples of where in many other ways, the costs of COVID and the sacrifices of COVID are landing very unequally on different people. A lot of people out there did not think twice before pulling their kids out of the schools. For others, it's been a real struggle. And I think I'll note here um, that I've had two kinds of conversations about the idea of learning pods and, and pulling kids out of either daycare or, or school. And they divide very equally between conversations I have uh, publicly on social media and conversations I have with other parents between us. Uh -huh. Yep. No, absolutely. And f forgive me for interrupting you there, but I'm going to guess that that what I just said there about self-image and public image is going to be the dividing line there, right? People might talk very openly among fellow parents, among friends, among brothers and sisters, uh, but they might talk very bluntly and clearly about the first job being that of the parent, whereas they might feel more of an obligation to performatively fret about that on social media. Yeah, I mean, I I think that is the dividing line, and I think it does um, it does reduce us to kind of our our cleanest selves. Because you know, again, uh, my mother, who uh, I want to be able to see her grandchild, um, is is one of the most progressive people that I have ever met. But if I told her that we can either send her grandchild to daycare and she can't see her, or we can take her out of the system and you can actually play with her. Like, I know which one she would choose. She wouldn't, she wouldn't post about it on Facebook, but I know which one she'd choose. I think that, and I mean, I don't, I don't know how much time you have for me today. We, we might need to start doing seven or eight other podcasts to capture all this material here. But this really is, like I said before, this is a where the rubber meets the road moment. And I, I said in my, my newsletter, it, 
it's a more primal issue, right? Because the safety of your children is something genetic. It's hardwired into you. All of the scariest moments in, in my life have been when I had reasons to fear for the safety of my children. I don't think I'm unusual in that as a parent. No. But I, I, I did mention there are some, some other issues, right? Like we've already talked about uh, cl climate change being an issue, right? Everybody knows what the right view to have on climate change. Everybody knows what the right thing to say publicly is. Many of the people saying that probably have carbon footprints that are well above the median. I, I mentioned another example of uh, homelessness being an issue, right? Everybody wants to solve homelessness. Everybody wants more money being spent on social services. Everybody thinks the shelter system needs uh, more, more beds, more, more staff, more capacity. And the moment you put a shelter in your neighborhood, everybody's opposing it because that's someone else's problem to solve. This is not exactly a NIMBY issue, but I think it is revealing the same kind of emotional and, and ideological tensions where all of us want a really, really good education system. All of us want that great equalizer. None of us want our kids or our moms or our mothers-in-law to be the ones who are in literal danger of death in order to make that possible here. That is why COVID, you said this so perfectly, COVID really has revealed our truest selves here. But the thing that I find fascinating is that some of us, by either life experience or our, just our personal human nature, never really were harboring any doubts about that. I have, I have found it more interesting personally to see the people who have struggled to admit this about themselves. And I don't say this churlishly, I'm not saying this in any way as a criticism, but I just find it really interesting the people who have genuinely been like, oh wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. I don't know if I if if you're if you're one of those people. Like you've said you thought about it for two minutes. I don't know how emotionally taxing those two two minutes were for you here. But I would be genuinely interested to talk to someone who has really struggled with with this decision because it would be fascinating to kind of know when they looked in the mirror and had that struggle, what was going on in their head. For me, it was never hard. For you, it only took you two minutes. What about someone who had really, really struggled on this one? I'd be fascinated to have that talk. I'll ask you just one more question to try to uh, tie this whole thing in a bow, because you mentioned climate change um, and a number of other social issues, and that we're willing to help so far as we can. And is this just a symbol of why we don't solve any of these things? Because there's a line uh, of personal inconvenience or uh, family safety that so many of us are willing to walk up to uh, and pay lip service to, but not cross. That's a great question. And let me give you a probably unsatisfying answer. There was a great poll that I wrote a column about about a year ago. It was by Ipsos. And it was about climate change, which is, again, like we keep kind of getting off topic here, but I think the listeners will understand. The Ipsos poll asked a couple of different questions. They said, like, how do you think climate change is serious? How, how serious do you think it is? Is it an ex existential threat to, to the future of humanity? And like I said before, people know what the right answer is. So you had super majorities of Canadians going, climate change is real, and it's a huge threat to our future. And then the second part of that poll was, and how much are you personally willing to spend on it? And when you like, it was kind of like, you know, uh, Ipsos posed like a kind of a multiple choice question, right? It was zero up to $100, up to $200. And when you actually, what I found so interesting about this is that you had, I'm, I'm quoting from memory here. So the numbers probably aren't exact, but it was almost 80% of Canadians were willing to say, uh, yes, climate change is real and it's happening and it's a threat to our future of the future of human civilization. But then when you said to them, how much are you willing to spend to it in order to get up to that 80% number, 
you had to set the ceiling at how much you were willing to spend at $200 a year. So you have, I, I drew from this, you had in this country, a super majority of citizens who agreed that there is something right now that is a threat to the future of our civilization. And they were not willing to spend more than $200 a year to do anything about that. So climate change is a great example of this, but I think COVID because it's so visceral really is the same. And you've asked me that great question of, is this why we can't solve great problems? I'm not sure if if that's the right formulation. I think the problem is often we can't solve great problems because we insist on trying to solve them based on our understanding of human beings wish to be seen as opposed to how they actually act. I'm a cynic on this. I'm an yeah. optimist to the extent that I think, you know, progress is possible. Progress is good. Progress is desirable in many areas. But call me a cynic man, but I think you've got to structure your system of how you're going to go about this in a way that actually fits within how human beings are hardwired. COVID and schooling is fascinating because it is plugged right into that parent's visceral need to protect their child from harm. But if you look at, like I said, there's other issues like homelessness or almost any social issue, right? Because most of these things we could make big progress on and all we would have to do is devote huge amounts of money and attention, but we don't do it. Why? Because taxpayers like us are the guys spending the money. So this is a clarifying issue to us because it makes it very stark and obvious. I'm not sure it really reveals anything about us, though, that we didn't already know, even if we didn't like to admit it. As you said it best, uh, privileged persons enjoy privilege. Thanks, Matt. Anytime. Matt Gurney and I will plug his newsletter. One more time, it's at mattgurney.substack.com. Thanks for listening. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can always find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us at TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Claire Broussard is the lead producer of The Big Story. Brian Clark and Stephanie Phillips are our associate producers. Annalisa Nielsen is our digital editor. And I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk Monday. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.